Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In Bladensburg, Maryland, there's a 40-foot-tall cross in a memorial park that stood there since 1918. The land it sits on has been public land since the 1960s, when the state of Maryland acquired it. Since then, the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission has taken on the responsibility for the maintenance of the cross. In a recent case, the American Humanist Association sued the commission and argued that its maintenance of the cross violated the Establishment Clause. A big part of the litigation ended up being a dispute over the relevance of what the court calls the Lemon Test. Justice Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, concluded that Lemon was a misadventure that had sought a grand unified theory of the Establishment Clause but left us only a mess. That mess was on display with the court's many disagreements in this case. Seven of the justices agreed that the cross did not violate the Establishment Clause, but no one opinion about what to do with the Lemon Test commanded more than a plurality. Samuel Alito wrote an opinion signed by Roberts, Breyer, and Kavanaugh. Kagan joined only part of that opinion, and then Justices Breyer, Kavanaugh, and Kagan also wrote separate concurring opinions. Justice Thomas wrote separately to say that he didn't think the Establishment Clause should even apply to state and local governments. Then he also signed on to Justice Gorsuch's separate opinion that the humanists didn't have standing to sue in the first place. Justice Ginsburg then issued a dissent in an opinion joined by Justice Sotomayor saying that the cross was clearly a Christian symbol, that its maintenance at public expense was clearly a violation of the Establishment Clause. Part of what they were fighting about was the way in which we approach Establishment Clause questions in the first place, and the 1971 case of Lemon v. Kurtzman loomed large over this whole discussion. When the court handed down its decision in Lemon, they had only recently decided that school-sponsored prayer and Bible reading were unconstitutional. In the case of Abington versus Shemp, they had said that the test for whether something violates the Establishment Clause could be stated as follows. What are the purpose and primary effect of the enactment? If either is the advancement or inhibition of religion, then the enactment exceeds the scope of legislative power as circumscribed by the Constitution. That is to say that to withstand the strictures of the Establishment Clause, there must be a secular legislative purpose and a primary effect that neither advances nor inhibits religion. In Lemon v. Kurtzman, the court then took that language and developed a more specific test with three prongs. Before getting to that, though, some background. Kurtzman was the superintendent of schools in Pennsylvania, and Lemon sued Kurtzman to challenge the state policy that allowed taxpayer dollars to purchase secular educational services for private schools including, in some cases, paying for teacher salaries and students' textbooks, so long as the subject matter was, in those specific classes, secular. Turns out that about 96% of the private schools in Pennsylvania were religious. Most of those religious schools were Catholic. So you had a situation where the state was subsidizing the cost of instructional salaries and textbooks for secular classes, math and literature and so forth, at primarily religious schools. In that old case of Everson versus Board of Education, if you remember, the court said it was okay for the state to pay for the transportation costs of private schools, including private religious schools. The point in that case, and the point of that policy, was not to establish religion, but to promote education. So what's wrong with having the state pay for other private school costs? And where's the line to be drawn? 
That's the challenge of Lemon. And the three-pronged test from the case is this. First, the statute must have a secular legislative purpose. Second, its principle or primary effect must be one that neither advances nor inhibits religion. And finally, the statute must not foster an excessive entanglement with religion. In this case, the court found that the statute had a secular purpose. It was designed to advance education. But they said they didn't need to determine whether it nonetheless had the effect of promoting religion because it fostered an excessive entanglement between government and religion. It failed that third prong. And this is the test that has left the court in a mess. Consider some of the other cases that have been decided under the Lemon Test since then. In 1985, the court struck down the practice of having moments of silence at the beginning of the school day in Alabama. The court found that the law had no secular legislative purpose. It was just a way of encouraging kids to pray silently before school. In 1992, the court struck down the practice of inviting religious officials from the community to give invocations at high school graduation ceremonies. But then in 2014, the Supreme Court said that city councils could begin with a religious invocation, even a sectarian one. In 2005, in a pair of cases decided the same day, the court's divisions were on full display. The two cases each had to do with public displays of the Ten Commandments, but in very different contexts. One was a six-foot-three-inch monument of the Ten Commandments displayed on the lawn of the Texas State Capitol. That monument had been donated by the Fraternal Order of the Eagles back in 1961, and it was in a collection of other historical markers. The other involved displays of the Ten Commandments in three different county courthouses in Kentucky. In a 5-4 to four decision, the court said that the Texas Ten Commandments display passed constitutional muster and could stay. And then in a separate 5-4 to four decision with a different coalition of justices, the court said that the Ten Commandments displays in Kentucky did not pass constitutional muster and must go. And if you read the court's Establishment Clause cases carefully, you can see along the way various proposals for alternatives to the Lemon Test. Some justices have suggested that the real question is whether government is neutral with respect to religion, others whether government is endorsing religion, and others whether some practice fits into a larger historic tradition, what we might call civil religion or ceremonial deism in the United States. More recently, Justice Thomas has questioned whether it makes sense to incorporate the Establishment Clause at all and apply it to the states in the first place. A friend of mine once sent me an email that said, if you have to teach the Establishment Clause, this is about all you need to know. It was an excerpt from the syllabus in the case of Allegheny versus ACLU, this 1989 case, about a Christian nativity scene and a menorah displayed at a county courthouse in Pennsylvania. In context, the court held that the Christian nativity scene, which prominently displayed the words, glory to God for the birth of Jesus Christ, was a violation of the Establishment Clause, but that the menorah sitting next to other holiday displays, including a Christmas tree, did not violate the Establishment Clause. And the syllabus giving an overview of the decision says this, Justice Blackman announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to parts 3A, 4, and 5, in which Brennan, Marshall, Stevens, and O'Connor joined, an opinion with respect to parts 1 and 2, in which Stevens and O'Connor joined, an opinion with respect to part 3B, in which Stevens joined, an opinion with respect to part 7, in which O'Connor joined, and an opinion with respect to part 6, O'Connor filed an opinion concurring in part and concurring in the judgment in part two of which Brennan and Stevens joined, passed page 623. Brennan filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part in which Marshall and Stevens joined, passed page 637. Stevens filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part in which Brennan and Marshall joined, passed 646. 
Kennedy filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in part and dissenting in part in which Rehnquist and White and Scalia joined past page 655. This is the mess Gorsuch was talking about in the recent Bladensburg cross case that we began with. That case, called the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association, gives the current convoluted state of play with respect to the Establishment Clause. And here's Justice Alito's opinion announcement in that case. Two factors that inform our decision today are the role of the cross in commemorating the First World War and the soldiers who sacrificed their lives for this country in that conflict and the longstanding nature of the monument at issue here. Immediately after World War I, communities across America built memorials to commemorate the fallen soldiers, and many of these memorials incorporated the image of the cross. The United States adopted the cross as part of its military honors and marked the grave sites of foreign soldiers abroad with white crosses or stars of David, creating an image that became inextricably linked with the ultimate price paid by 116,000 soldiers. This relationship undoubtedly influenced the design of World War I memorials. And though that may not have been the sole or dominant reason that various memorials incorporated the cross, the passage of time has made it all but impossible to tell. Regardless of the original reason for erecting a monument, the community may now wish to preserve it for very different reasons, such as the historic preservation and traffic safety concerns that the Commission pressed here. Finally, as World War I monuments have endured through the years and become a familiar part of the landscape, requiring their removal would not be viewed by many as a neutral act, but as a manifestation of hostility to religion. In analyzing the constitutionality of the Bladensburg Memorial, we do not apply the much-criticized lemon test. We also recognize that the cross remains a Christian symbol, but it may take on other meanings in some contexts, and that is the situation here. Justice Ginsburg then took the rare step of announcing her dissenting opinion. Listen here. This case, as you have just heard, concerns an immense Latin cross standing alone on a traffic island at the center of a busy three-way intersection in Bladensburg, Maryland. Known as the Peace Cross, the monument was erected in 1925 to honor soldiers from the county who lost their lives in World War I. Both the Peace Cross and the Traffic Island are owned and maintained by an agency of the state of Maryland. Decades ago, this court recognized that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment demands government neutrality among religious faiths and between religion and non-religion. Today, the court erodes that neutrality principle, diminishing precedent, serving to preserve it. I therefore dissent from the court's decision. The Latin cross is the foremost symbol of the Christian faith, embodying the central theological claim of Christianity, that the Son of God died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that his death and resurrection offer the possibility of eternal life. The Latin cross is not emblematic of any other faith. By maintaining the peace cross on a public highway, 
the state places Christianity above other faiths and conveys a message of exclusion to non-Christians, nearly 30 percent of the U.S. population, telling them they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. The Court's attempt to secularize what is unquestionably a sacred symbol does not withstand rational inspection. This all leaves the Court's existing Establishment Clause jurisprudence on pretty shaky ground and marks, if not the death, then at least the decline of the lemon test as a way to sort through the Establishment Clause and what it requires in any particular case. The Court's Free Exercise Clause jurisprudence has not been so volatile, but has nonetheless yielded its own share of controversy. Next week, we are off at spring break, but in two weeks when we return, we'll pick up here with the First Amendment's stipulation that Congress shall make no law abridging the free exercise of religion.